Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard Church. Excited that you're joining us this morning. And today is a fun day because we're going to talk about sex. So this is going to be a good morning. Everybody is, is like geared in. Now I've got, that's the best introduction I've ever had in my life. Everybody's like, notepads out, we're ready to go. No, I am excited to continue our series this morning called Greater Than. We're in the middle of this series where we've really been looking at the messages of the culture versus the messages of the kingdom. What our culture is trying to sell you on a regular basis and instead what the Bible has to say about that same topic. And so today we're gonna step into the greater than message titled, Love is Greater Than Lust. Love is Greater Than Lust. And I can tell you it was torture to write this message when my wife was gone for a whole week on a missions trip. It was brutal that I had to be alone writing this message, but I'm excited. I feel like God is going to speak to many of you this morning. He showed up in a dynamic way during first service, and I'm praying for the same thing to happen this service as well. Let's pray together. Uh, and then if you know, you're a parent, you're not quite ready to tackle some of these conversations, uh, my prayer will not only bless this message, but also serve as an opportunity for you to take your kids to kids ministry. If that's something you wanna do, we'll leave it up to you. Let's pray together and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that when we slow down and we lift our eyes to you, we become very aware that your eyes have never drifted off of us. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would come and fall upon us now and speak to us through your word. Speak to us about how love is greater than lust. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was preparing for this message, I ran across an article on hunting wolves. Kind of a, a weird pivot, but I feel like I feel like the way that the Eskimos hunt wolves is very applicable for us this morning. They have a really interesting technique when they hunt caribou sometimes and they, they down a caribou, they'll take a knife and they'll cover it with caribou blood and then stick it out in the frozen temperatures. The blood will freeze to the blade and then they'll do that over and over and over again until there's a thin wax-like covering on this metal blade and then they'll bury it into the tundra, securing it there so that it, it won't move. And the wolves love caribou. So they'll come from miles around following the scent of this blood. They'll walk up on the blade and they'll start to lick that blood. In the process though, their tongue goes numb. And by the time they lick the blood off the blade, they cut themselves. And now at this point, all they're doing is tasting blood. They're feasting themselves on their own pain. I know this is kind of a graphic way to start a message, but when you really think about it, I feel like the parallel plays in perfectly with what happens to your relationships, what happens to your family, and what has been happening to our culture over a generation of so or so when we allow lust in to the place of our heart. 
You see the messages that you see over and over and over again, the images that roll across your social media feed time and time again, or the normalcy of what you'll see on the TV and movie screens have begun to numb your mind and numb your heart to the pain that you're inviting in when you gaze on those images, when you behold those images and you invite them into your heart. After a while, it's really hard to distinguish between good and bad, pain and and pleasure, love or lust, and you're cutting yourself effectively and you're cutting your conscience as you invite those images in. And the society is experiencing catastrophic pain when you look at the amount of lust that is being peddled by our culture on a daily basis. Sexual abuse seems like it's everywhere. Pornography use and addiction to porn is well-documented. Even inside the church, pornography is at an all-time high. Marriages are being affected. Shame surrounds sex and impacts how we love our spouse. Entire new interpretations of traditionally held beliefs about what the Bible has to say about sex are being completely warped and changed so that they will feed our souls instead of us submitting to what the word of God actually says. 11 years old is now the average age of pornographic exposure. And you know how averages work. It does mean that some of the age of exposure is beyond that, but that some is much, much less than 11 years old. I was one of those 11-year-olds exposed early. An early exposure for me, coupled with no grid for biblical sexuality, no grid for healthy sexuality, meant that I navigated my sexuality, explored early and often because I had no grounding, no one speaking into my life about what sexuality submitted to God could actually look like. Now, I'm thankful to tell you this morning that God can transform all things that God has transformed my sexuality, that for 16 years I have now been 100% porn free. But there's a journey to get to that place of freedom. There's a journey to get to that place of freedom. And I'd be lying to you today if I told you that lust still doesn't impact maybe my daily life. Of course it does. It affects all of us because lust is everywhere. It's permeated our entire culture. It seems like you can't go a single day without seeing an image that's trying to draw you away from love and draw you in to lust. We're all affected. We're all impacted by lust. And I believe the only way forward is to create a shame-free space where we can have conversations about struggles, where we can confess and repent and seek reconciliation, and we can invite the transformative power of community and Christ to navigate these troublesome waters. Lust is everywhere. It's actually so common in our culture now that we're merging love and lust together to create a new word called love lust. This is a new phrase that's being used, love lust. People are singing about it. It's it's showing up in movies. Writers are writing about it, even encouraging this type of lifestyle. They have a definition that I'm gonna read for you. This is how they define love lust. An extremely strong and powerful feeling 
that goes inside and outside of your body. It's a magically powerful and wonderful thing. Can we pause for a moment and just, what a bunch of garbage that is. I mean, that is, I have two things that go off in my mind when I first ran across that definition. One, what a load of crap. That is just, I don't, amen. thank you. I was about to say, can you say that? But I think the amen solidifies it. What a bunch of crap. And two, because I'm a family uh, or a father of young children, I have this vision of this like Germanic pig from the movie Sing. If you've seen Sing, <laughs> where he said, you have to let the music take control of your body parts. <laughs> Welcome to my mind. This is, I told you my wife was gone all week. So this is, <laughs> but this is what, this is what our culture is saying. Our culture is saying love lust is the pinnacle of your sexual experience. Love lust is the thing that you should be pursuing. Love lust. The Bible has a definition of lust too. It's a little more academic, probably a little more solid ground for us to navigate this morning. This is how the Bible defines lust. Something that takes a grip on your heart, an inappropriate desire or inordinate attachment within your heart that impacts how you live. I wanna read that for you again. Something that takes a grip on your heart, an inappropriate desire or inordinate attachment within your heart that impacts how you live. This is lust. Jesus had pretty strong opinions about lust. I don't know if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, he sets the standard pretty high. Matthew 5, 27, he starts it this way. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. I think if it stopped there, we would all probably nod our head and say, yes, but Jesus continues in verse 28. He says, but I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a bold, that is a bold word. That is a strong, bold word. Jesus is directly linking lust and adultery together. And this tends to be a problem for the American culture because we say things like, it's no big deal, I was only looking. I wouldn't actually cheat. But Jesus says it's the same thing. He doesn't even say it's like adultery, leaving some like room for the gray. He doesn't say you're on your way towards adultery if. He just links them together. If you're doing this, then you're committing adultery. Jesus says it's the, it's the same thing. If he were walking around the American church today in the 21st century church, he might say this, you have heard a preacher say, don't look at porn. But then he would continue, but I say to you, even when you do, you're already committing adultery on your spouse. It's a bold, bold word. Lust is inherently selfish. It, it offers shortcuts to individual pleasures and momentary relief. And so what happens in our culture is singles float around from a relationship to relationship, hoping to feel this ecstasy of intimacy. And even married couples will enter into intimate moments, hoping to get the most out of it for themselves. Self-centered sex in order to feel pleasure. Both of these examples are a lot more like lust than they are like love. 
But God is inviting you into something deeper. God has something way beyond what this world and its lusts have to offer. God's way doesn't include shortcuts to intimacy, but offers a bedrock of stability formed on the foundation of love. But in order to navigate those waters, it requires vulnerability. It requires self-control. It even requires sacrifice. I want to look at John 15 this morning, a text that is rarely used when talking about how love is greater than lust, but always used when looking at love specifically. I do think that it applies directly to what we're talking about this morning. And the beauty of this text is it applies to everyone, whether you're married, single, engaged, divorced, or just tired of relationships all together. John 15, verse 12 to 17. This is my commandment, Jesus says. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay, one, lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, Jesus said. Love each other, love each other. John 15, 12 to 17 gives you, Jesus gives you this incredible big command. He charges us to love people in verse 12, in the same way that Jesus loved us. We're called to love our spouse, love our friends, love mankind in the same way that Jesus loved us. The very message that you read in John 15 is diametrically opposed to lust. They're they're completely incompatible with each other. There is no love lust in the Bible. There's only love. And of course, that doesn't mean that there's not passionate moments of intimacy. There is. If you haven't noticed, sex is pretty enjoyable. Okay. I was waiting for the amen on that one. Frozen chosen this morning. I get it. We're walking on eggshells. It's important to laugh a little bit though too. Uh, I actually, that wasn't, I just lost my point. Um, Sex is God's gift. Sex is God's gift. And and so we don't need to be ashamed of it as Christians. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace what God says about it. We We need to be informed though by his word and by his message of love, not the culture's message of lust. Let's look back at verse 12 and 13. I wanna draw out one of the main points here. Verse 12, again, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus tells us right away that love starts with him. He says that love starts with him. If you want to know how to love well, then look at the life of Jesus and copy it to love people like like he loved people. If you're married, you look at your spouse and, and you ask the question, how can I lay my life down for my spouse? And Jesus isn't saying that you you have to sacrifice your life on the cross. There's only one sacrifice. He is the savior and Lord over all. But what does it mean if you lay your preferences down on behalf of your spouse? What does it mean if you defer to yourself in moments of love to elevate your spouse? What does it mean to die to self 
If you wanna love well, you need to love like Jesus who gave it all. Authors Cloud and Townsend, two of my favorite authors, anytime they write a book, I, I buy it because it's just so helpful for my heart, for my discipleship. They're mentors from afar, I like to think. They define love in a really concrete and practical way. And I wanna share that because I, I feel like it's been so reliable for me as I've taken their definition of love, their, their biblical definition of love and tried to apply it to my life. I've found that I love much more like Christ. This is how they define love, thinking and doing what is best for another. Thinking and doing what is best for another. I love this phrase. It's easy to memorize. It's sticky. It's in my mind. And when I apply it to the way that I see Jesus interacting with people, I see that it's actually very in line with biblical love. I mean, even just think about that first text I, I shared, five, uh, Matthew 5, uh, about the adultery, right? Jesus is saying, if you think and do what's best for another, that this doesn't play where, very well with lust. Because it, it's not just about the physical act of cheating, right? If you're committing, or if you're, if you're entertaining lustful thoughts in your heart, you're even committing adultery. Because that's not doing and thinking what's best for another. Love actually has someone else's interests before your own. And so when we take that idea and we begin to talk about moments of intimacy, I think it's very easy to see the differences between lust and love. See, lust would say, what's in it for me? Lust would say, how, how can I get the most pleasure out of this? How can I selfishly get intimacy? What feels good for me? And how can I be the center of this intimate moment? But that sounds a lot more like sexual narcissism than sexual intimacy. Love sounds different. Love would say, how can I think and do what's best for my spouse in moments of intimacy? Lust would say, how can I selfishly get? But love would say, how can I selflessly give in moments of intimacy? And when love is functioning in that way, when love is under the umbrella of God's authority and God's way, it actually brings God glory. It brings God honor. Here's some theological ammo for you. You can jot this one down and memorize it. Sex can be an act of worship. Sex can be an act of worship. Now it's important for me to emphasize the word can because although sex can be an act of worship, it can also be an act of disobedience. It can also be an act of disobedience. And just for the record, I think that we do need to emphasize that. I, I do believe that the Bible talks about sex within the confines of a covenant relationship. Sex within the confines of a covenant marriage where you're committing life together. And so when sex is functioning this way, functioning the way that it was intended to function, it gives God glory. It can be done as an act of worship. You can try to use that later if you want. I don't know if it will work for you. Next time we have a night of worship, it might seem very different. When sex is demonstrated and functioning under God's delegated authoritative plan, it brings him honor. It brings him glory. But you have to remember that original definition of love, it's gotta be at the center of those intimate moments. What is thinking and doing 
what is the best way to think and do for another? Because it's, it's easy to just enter into those moments thinking about yourself, but that's not love. First thing from this text, first thing from John 15 we learn in this kind of dichotomous you know, conversation is that love lays your life down for another. It defers to another, it puts someone else above yourself. If we continue in the passage though, verse 15 gives us another huge clue on how we can move away from lust and into love. This is what Jesus says. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I've told you everything the father told me. And this is really, really good news for each and every one of us as we navigate conversations around sexuality because as we even talk about it, like anxiety and self-condemnation and shame may be creeping up, but you have to know verse 15 that the primary emotion that God feels when he thinks about you even right now is not anger. It's loving friendship. Right now, just take a litmus test. Just take a dipstick test of your heart. Am I feeling shame? Am I feeling condemnation right now? That is not in line with God's word. God is feeling loving friendship as we navigate this conversation with you right now. And he's drawing you in to this truth. But as you continue in that verse, namely, you, you realize that this has deep implications for our love life, deep implications for those closest relationships and those moments of intimacy. This is what we learned, that love has no secrets. Love has no secrets. Jesus said it plainly in verse 15, I've told you everything. I've told you everything the Father has told me. Love has no secrets. Can you imagine life just for a moment? Just imagine your relationships right now. Just imagine your life with no secrets. What that would look like, what that would feel like. You know the amount of energy that you have to expend to keep all these things hidden and secretive from those that you love? Now you're free. If you're living a life with no secrets, you're not spending all that energy, keeping all of this behind you, all of this under the rug, pretending to be someone that you're not. Instead, you're free because love has no secrets. You know, every time you keep a secret, you're slowly creating distance between the person that you really love. And I've watched it in my life and I've watched it in the lives of those that I interact with that as that distance grows, that's like Satan's playground. And he just wants to come into that distance and create an even wider wedge between you and your spouse. He wants to take that room that you're creating through those secrets and just blow it even bigger and wider. So the chasm between your hearts is so big, it feels like you can't come back. But your spouse deserves to know the real you. They deserve to know all of your successes, all of your pain, all of your struggles, all of your secrets. They they deserve to know the, the real person they married. After all, you joined in a covenant relationship with this person. You're gonna fight it out together. You're gonna battle these fights together. See, lust will, lust will tell you lies. Lust will tell you stories and they, and they sound sometimes like this, like secrets are fine. It's just gonna hurt that person if they know the real truth anyway. Or if they knew this, they would walk out on you in a heartbeat. Lust might say, this isn't hurting anyone. After all, everyone's already asleep. Or lust might say, if they would just show me more attention, then I wouldn't have to do this. See, lust 
encourages secrets and shame lurks in its shadow. But love invites vulnerability. Love leaves behind belonging and connection and intimacy and reconciliation. Love doesn't abandon ship when things get hard. Love buckles down, says we're in this together. And I understand that, that today for some, the secrets and the, the sexual shame is, is deep and it's, it's affecting your life in a really powerful way. And maybe uh, you, you can't imagine moving forward with your spouse. You can't imagine what would happen if you lived a life with no secrets. And I, I don't think that I would be pastoring very well if I like opened up this wound, but didn't talk about some ways to navigate life through the shame and through eliminating these secrets. You see, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of tools that Jesus has given to us, a lot of opportunities where we can surround ourselves with community that's authentic, community that is accountable, community that will allow us to experience the transformative power of Jesus Christ. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that this is the last day you can sign up for a small group. We plan these things out so that we can invite you into these types of communities because it's gonna be really hard to start and continue the journey today from one message, but a small group will help you navigate those struggles. There are things like confession and repentance, things like experiencing God's eternal love and allowing him to transform you from the inside out. And for some of you, you're, you're, you're far enough down this road that you it's really actually hard to imagine even starting the conversation. And for those of you this morning who feel like you're that far down, I wanna tell you, that we, have, we have a member of our church, a good friend of mine, who's a, who's a family and marriage therapist, who is, I think, one of the leading voices in sex addiction. And if you wanna have a conversation with this person and start a journey of what this would look like to navigate healing through sexual addiction, then it's actually one of your next steps. And, and just a quick note on the next step, it's completely private. So you click that button, I'm the only person that's gonna get an email that says, hey, I'm raising my hand, I wanna meet that therapist. And then all I'm going to do is connect the dots. I'm gonna help you start a relationship if that's what you want to do. But no matter what you commit to, whether it's telling secrets to your spouse or to your loved one, things that maybe you've never told, joining a small group and putting yourself in an atmosphere where confession and repentance and accountability can be a part of your life, or actually clicking that next step and wanting to meet the therapist, right? There's all kinds of next steps, but I just wanna encourage you to do something. To do something because lust is not passive. Lust, of, lust is aggressive. And if you are just passively kind of waiting and holding on for something to change in your life, you will continue to be bombarded, not only with the enemy's ways, but with our culture and just all of the different systems that it's peddling lust through to you on a daily basis. Do something. Join God's work in some way. Our text is telling you that if you want to walk in love, that you need to lay your life down that love has no secrets. And finally, if you read uh, John 15, 16, you read that love initiates. 
that love initiates. God has been initiating with mankind since the beginning of time, over and over and over again. When we make mistakes, God says, I choose you. When we make mistakes, God says, I love you. When we make mistakes, God says, I'm coming after you. I choose you, I pursue you. I want to have a relationship with you. John 15, 16 says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Love initiates, love chooses others. And in a relationship and in your marriage, I think in today's culture, it's getting easier and easier and easier to just opt out and walk away. To just cut the relationship off and say, I'm done. Our culture is making that really easy to happen. But I think Jesus would remind you this morning that love says, I choose you. I choose you again. And I choose you again. I don't choose that behavior. I don't choose that lust. And I I don't want that to be part of our relationship. But I choose you because I love you. And my choice is a demonstration of the love that I have in my heart. We're talking about moments of intimacy and kind of this difference between love and lust. And I think it's always important, always important to memorize this, that love is defined as thinking and doing what's best for another. Because it's really easy to initiate lust when it's all about you. It's much more difficult to initiate when you're putting someone else in front of yourself. My wife and I were <clears throat> going through premarital counseling. Our, our, uh, our premarital pastor kind of, well, he, he likened us to kitchen appliances. And I thought it was really strange at first, but actually the longer I've been married, the more it's made sense to me. He said, Jeff, you're kind of like a microwave. And, 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 and Natalie can just come in and push a couple buttons and then all of a sudden your radioactive love waves are gonna take over and they're gonna start cooking and you'll be ready to eat. But Natalie is more like a crock pot. Don't treat her like a microwave. You need to treat her like a crock pot. You need to turn the crock pot on. You need to check on it in a couple hours, maybe add some spices. And by the end of the day, you're going to enjoy a really nice meal. You tracking with the metaphor? I can tell by the laughter you're tracking with the metaphor. That's good. That's good. That'd be really bad if you didn't. I'd have a lot of explaining to do. Love initiates. Love chooses and initiates what's best for the other. And it's really important. And the beauty of how God arranged marriage is is that there are going to be moments where, where you're both on the same page, but oftentimes you're working from different sides of the equation and you have to choose to love them the way that they feel loved. And so if you've married a microwave, then it's, it's actually loving every now and then to push a couple buttons and start to cook. And if you've married a crock pot, it's important that you understand that and you choose to love that way. It's that mutual love and submission and surrender to one another that makes this thing work in a dynamic way. Love chooses, but you need to remember to choose in a way that blesses them. It's not just about you. I think it's important to laugh. It's important to laugh in messages like this. Otherwise, that shame and that self-condemnation can creep in so strong that you can't actually hear the truth. And so a little brevity, I think, is really important in the midst of talking about some of these hard truths. But I, I do want to share one last truth with you that, that I really have been praying would land this morning. And that truth is this, that God can transform your sexual shame. God can transform your sexual 
shame. The cross and what Jesus did on the cross, the shedding of his blood for you and me, it has no limits. And for some reason in our culture, we've kind of believed this lie that God can transform every area, but when it comes to our sexual shame, there's some kind of boundary or limit that it won't penetrate, but it's not true. The power of the cross can transform all things in your life and it can 100% transform your sexual shame. See, Satan wants to keep that sexual shame private. He wants you to keep all of these little secrets because he knows that if you keep them a secret, he has power over them. And he can keep poking and prodding and that self-condemning voice will come and the shame will happen. And I think that because of where our culture is at, we're at such a heightened level of lust right now in our culture, that it might be one of the top tactics the enemy is using in marriages and in individuals right now. Keeping that sexual shame more active in your life than the freedom that Jesus is offering for you, offering to you. Because there, there really are no limits to God's transformation. The blood of Christ is more than enough to wash you clean in every single area in your past, right now, and even future sin that you may stumble into. The cross is enough. This is my story. This is absolutely my story. I already told you that I was exposed to pornography at a really early age. And when you couple that with someone who's not following Jesus, there's no moral grid. There's no ground uh, of healthy or biblical sexuality to stand on. That means that I explored early and I explored often. I was in multiple relationships. And then I went to college and I gave my life to Christ. I gave my life to Christ in college and I realized, oh, God actually really cares about biblical sexuality. He actually has some things to say about healthy sexuality. And what happened for me was I was all of a sudden awakened to this new conviction that quickly turned to shame because of my past. I remember one day being in the cafeteria and I didn't have any Christian friends before I, I gave my life to Christ. And so once I did give my life to Christ, I started going to this InterVarsity Christian Fellowship gathering. It was a dynamic gathering. It helped me in my discipleship so much. And don't you know that some folks there really helped me navigate my past and some people really hurt. But I didn't have any Christian friends. So one time in the cafeteria, I thought, I need to sit. I need to sit with some Christians. I would love to have some friends that love Jesus. And so I found a table before I was a Christian, we called it the last supper table because they were always sitting together. I didn't, I didn't know why. <clears throat> but once I gave my life to Christ, I was like, oh, I'd like some friends that are, that are Christians too. So I went there and I sat down with them and they had no idea about my past. They had no idea about my, my previous lifestyle. The conversation at the lunch table that day was about how they would never marry a virgin. Or the, excuse me, I said it the other way around. They would, <laughs> oops. Laughter is good. The, the conversation at, at the lunch table that day was how the, they as Christians would never marry someone who wasn't a virgin because they had waited their whole life to have sex until they were married and they expected their spouse to live the same way. And I'm just sitting at the edge of the table and it's, it felt like with every comment and with every word, they were just heaping bricks and piles and weight of shame on me at the end of the table and I didn't know what to do. I just sat there quietly 
It felt, they didn't mean it this way, but it felt like a personal attack. I finished eating, I got up and I walked out quietly. And by the time I had laid my plate and my silverware and everything down at the conveyor belt to take it into the washroom, I created a lie in my mind. You have to be really careful. You have to be really careful about the stories you tell yourself in moments of pain because they're not always grounded in truth. This one was not grounded in truth. I said to myself, I'll never marry a Christian woman. That's my lot in life. Why would they want to marry me? I'm damaged goods. I've lived this life. And now I'm just going to be unwanted. I just thought I was going to be like Paul the rest of my life. Then I met Natalie. I really liked Natalie. She's easy on the eyes. I Facebook stalked her. This was when... This was when only college students had access to Facebook. So I, we, we Facebook stalked. It was a real, I mean, it's still a real thing. <laughs> found out she was a worship leader. I found out that she really loved Jesus. Found out she was a lot of fun. We started dating about three or four dates in. I realized I'm going to have to tell her my past and this is going to be where our relationship ends. Because again, I had that lie. Like, why would, why would a Christian woman want to be with me? It was our third date. I actually remember it, distinct memory of it. We were driving home from our date and I felt like I heard God say, I want you to tell her today. I want you to tell her that, that you had lived a really wild life in the past and you had sexual relationships in the past, but once you gave your life to Christ, that you've been living a fully dedicated life to holiness the way that God wants you to and you're a new creation in Christ, but I want you to tell her today. I pulled over literally pulled over. I, this wasn't a conversation that I could have while we were driving. We pulled into a parking lot and I said, look, I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something about my past. It's no longer who I am, but it is part of my past. And I told her. And I just sat there and I thought, this relationship is gonna be over. She unbuckled her seatbelt. She got out of her car. And I, for, a, for a moment, I thought to myself, she's actually walking home. She's leaving that quick. She walked around the car, opened my door, gave me a hug. And she said, Jesus has forgiven you. And I forgive you too. Jesus's death has set you free. And I view you as the man you're becoming, not the man that you were. And I thought to myself, this must be what love feels like. This must be what that unconditional love and unconditional acceptance and the power of the cross must feel like because for the first time I'm meeting somebody who's rewriting the lies that I've heard that sometimes the church peddles. I thought to myself, this is love. And some of you need to know that this morning. Some of you need to know right now that no matter what happened in your past, that the cross is enough for you. That no matter what's happened in the past, no matter how many relationships, no matter what you think you've done to disqualify yourself from God or from experiencing true love today, that the cross is enough. The blood of Christ will wash you 100% clean and that God can transform your sexuality. What he has done is enough. God's love has no limits. God's forgiveness has no limits. God's redemption can set you on a new path starting today. It's not going to be easy. 
There's gonna be work to be done, but it can start today if you want it to. Let's pray.